0: All right, you can turn to chapter 13 of Acts, chapter 13, we're going to continue moving through the book of Acts and we're actually going to, going to turn a corner uh, this morning as we move out of the familiar territory of Jerusalem where we've spent most of the book of Acts and we're going to move out with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. So there's quite a few missionary journeys. That's actually the rest of the book of Acts, lots of them. We're going to look at the first one this morning. We're going to kind of skip around And look at it. Here's a map just to kind of orient you. So their first missionary journey, they're going to leave what's labeled Syria there, right to the north of Israel, the church in Antioch. And they're going to go to the island of Cyprus and plant a number of churches there. And then they're going to move up into a place with a lot of fancy words, but it's just Turkey. So think of modern day Turkey. That's where most of actually the New Testament took place was modern day Turkey. So they're going to move up there and move through a number of cities and plant churches throughout all of them. And and in some of those cities, things are going to go well. And in some of those cities, things are going to go really poorly. Paul is going to be stoned in the midst of this missionary journey. Uh, It lasted about uh, two years, two to two and a half years. And it took about 900 miles. That's how long that round trip is for this missionary journey. Now, Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, and Chris McGuffey, who you've often seen up here, and and me, we we got to go to Turkey this summer to visit a number of archaeological sites, and so we traveled. That's actually uh, Leo there, and we ate uh, shish kebab and more shish kebab and more shish kebab. We love kebab and we ate it every meal. It was so good. It is worth going to Turkey just to have kebab. I'm serious. It's incredible. So we did also visit some cities and and we didn't make it as far east as the cities we're going to read about today. We focused on cities that Paul visited later in Acts, but they kind of all look the same. You kind of get a sense of what an ancient city looks like in Turkey when you visit any of them. So here are some of the cities that we visited. This is Sardis, which you come across in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, had a large Jewish synagogue and a huge Greek gymnasium. This is Pergamum. It was built high on the top of a hill for defense, like most ancient cities. And at the very top, it had a beautiful and elaborate temple for worshiping the emperor because that's what they did in a lot of these cities. This is Laodicea, which you read about in the book of Revelation, the city that was neither hot nor cold in the eyes of the Lord. They had beautiful colonnaded streets and multiple amphitheaters, and that's actually the view down Main Street. It's like the prettiest view down a Main Street of any town I've ever seen. Uh, This is Ephesus, which is the crown jewel of, of this area of Turkey. The city is magnificent. It's massive archaeological ruins. But what's interesting is wherever you are standing in the city, you can see idols all around you, temples everywhere you look. It was full of pagan idolatry. And finally, here's an interesting city called Hierapolis, which does appear in the New Testament. It was built on hot pools of salt water that, that filled up and, and made like basically hot tubs for the ancient world. So a lot of medicine was done here because they viewed those as healing, and they still are running today. It's, it's beautiful. It's a really pleasant place to visit. So Paul and Barnabas traveled in, in Acts 13 and 14 to an absolutely gorgeous part of the world and visited these incredibly interesting cities that are absolutely nothing like the world we live in. It felt so incredibly foreign, Visiting these places that Paul and Barnabas traveled through was so very different than anything we see around here, and that is the root of the problem that we face this morning. I spent time this week trying to think about how do we how do we preach, how do we walk through this first missionary journey in Acts thirteen and fourteen when it just feels so foreign to us? I mean, how many of you are in the middle of a two year mission trip taking the gospel to places that have never heard it? Well, none of you, because you're here. You're here this morning. You're here in, in the same place where you work, in the same place where you go to school, the same place where you raise kids day after day. You don't have huge crowds of people trying to stone you when you enter the city. You don't have all this crazy stuff going on. We just live regular lives. You're students just trying to make it to December and Christmas break. You are parents just trying to keep your kids from eating all of their Halloween candy in one day. You are working a job day after day in the same place, just trying to pay the bills. We are all living in the same place, doing the same thing day after day, and it feels so different than Paul and Barnabas. But here's the connection, because as we do the same thing day after day in the same place, you're going to the same classes, the same job, taking care of the same kids in the same place day after day, we have some good days and some bad days. And that's where I want to draw our story and the story of Paul and Barnabas together. We have some good days and some bad days, so did they. As we walk through their first missionary journey, we're going to see some really good days. When they were on top of the world and everyone wanted to hear this message that they came with. And then we're going to see some really bad days. When everyone hated them and wanted them dead. We're going to see good days and we're going to see bad days. But here is what is amazing. I want you to look with me. Acts chapter 13, the very end of the chapter. want you to look at the very last verse of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 52. Paul and Barnabas had some good days and some bad days, just like us. And yet, verse 52, and the disciples, so that's Paul, Barnabas, and all the followers of Jesus who were with them, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now that verse comes at the end of a very bad day. We'll look at that in a little bit. But what I want you to to, to look at as you see this verse, this verse is just remarkable. They were continually filled with joy. Doesn't mean they had a good hour as they're eating a nice meal or they're laughing together. No, continually, all the time, in the midst of really good days and really, really awful days, they were continually filled with joy. The passage is talking about really the inward quality of their lives, their personal sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and peace. They were continually filled with joy and with the Spirit. And so what I want to ask this morning, what I want us to think about is how can we have that kind of life that is filled with continual joy on both our good days and our bad days? How can we live a life like Paul and Barnabas that is constantly filled with joy and with the Spirit, whether the day is going good or whether the day is going bad? And I'll give you the short answer. So here it is. This is what we're going to come back to all morning. What we're going to unpack, the the simple answer, the key to living a life of continual joy is that we must learn to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix our eyes on the greatness of Jesus and the needs of other people. That's it. Really simple message this morning. If you want to live a life, of continual joy, unceasing joy, every moment of every day, you must get your eyes off yourself and fix them instead on the greatness of Jesus and the needs of other people. So let's see how Paul and Barnabas do that. Let's walk through this missionary journey. Let's look at some of the highlights. Look with me. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 13. We'll start in verse 2 they're in Antioch in the the city in the nation of Syria while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting the holy spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them they sent them away so being sent out by the holy spirit they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed To Cyprus, So the missionary journey, just to come back to our map, it begins in Antioch of Syria. The church there had grown strong. This is where the Christians were first called Christians. And and the church leaders, they spend time fasting and praying so that they can hear from the Lord. What does the Lord want them to do? And the Spirit actually spoke audibly to them. That's not usually how he leads the church. He usually leads us through our elders as they guide us. But this time the Spirit spoke audibly and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas. I have a mission for them. Yeah. So, so, get them ready to go. And so, Paul and Barnabas go and they go down to Cyprus and they begin to plant churches there. And we're going to skip that section of the story just because we don't have enough time this morning. We're going to jump to where they go next. So, they go down to Cyprus and then they're going to leave Cyprus and head up into modern day Turkey to the city of Perga. They're not going to stay there long. They're going to go north to Antioch in Pisidia. So, this is confusing. There's two Antiochs, I know. But we're going to think Turkey, Antioch. That's where they're going to go and spend most of chapter 13. So, Look with me at chapter 13. Let's pick up the story in verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, Listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm he led them out from it for a period of 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness when he had destroyed 7 nations in the land of Canaan he distributed their land as an inheritance all of which took about 450 years after these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years after he had removed him he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said I have found David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will from the descendants of this man according to promise God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus now we'll pause there for a second First thing I notice is that, wow, Paul can walk people through the Old Testament with no notes at all. He takes them all the way from Genesis to Jesus. Just boom, he's done. That's really cool. You should be able to do that too. That's awesome when you can walk somebody through the Old Testament. But what Paul's doing is he's drawing a line from the beginning of the Old Testament, the choice of, of Abraham and his family, all the way through the Exodus, through King David, and to Jesus. Because he's talking to Jews. He's in the synagogue. He's talking to Jews who don't yet know Jesus, and he wants them to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God promised you in the Old Testament. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's come, and, and Paul says more about Jesus. Jump down to verse 26. Brethren, son of, sons of Abraham's family, that is, the Jews, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. So Paul continues this story about Jesus. He says that that Jesus died, he was executed, but then God raised him from the dead, just as God had always intended. This was the plan of God. And and here's the results of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jump down to verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, From which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So, Paul says that through Jesus, God has provided forgiveness and freedom from death to everyone who believes. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. Gospel just means good news in Greek. That's all it is. Good news. That's the good news about Jesus that we preach and proclaim every week. That's how a person becomes a Christian. That's how a person enters into this family. So let's take a moment and make sure that we're clear on what Paul is saying. The gospel. The good news about Jesus is really, really simple. It's three points. Three points that you should know by heart. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life if we simply believe. That's the gospel. You, You don't have to know theology for the gospel. You don't have to know the Bible or like the Old Testament. You don't have to be able to do what Paul does to present the gospel. The gospel is really, really simple. Three very simple points that walk someone through how you receive eternal life, how you receive forgiveness, how you become a Christian. Just three points. Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, so you can be forgiven and have eternal life if you simply believe. You don't have to work for it. don't have to earn it. You just believe. So let's make sure we're all clear on this. This afternoon, let's say you're at home and a friend comes over. And your friend asks you, how can I become a Christian? Or uh, how can I have a relationship with God? Or how can I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Well, the answer to all three of those questions is the same. It's that. that. That's it. All three of those questions you answer by sitting them down and saying, well, the Bible tells us that God sent his son Jesus to die for your sins in your place and then God raised Jesus from the dead. So that God could give you forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. You don't work for those. You don't have to earn those. You don't have to pay those back. All you have to do is believe. So then you ask them, do you believe? And if they say yes, then boom, they're done. That's it. They're saved now if they believe that message. If they don't, if there's something holding them back, then just talk some more about Jesus. Talk about why you believe in Jesus. Talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Share your testimony. Keep the conversation about Jesus and keep bringing it back to those three points. It's so simple. The gospel is not rocket science. It's three points that are so simple that a child can understand them. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is simple enough for a child to understand. I know that because I have children. I have two six-year-olds, but they could tell you the gospel when they were four. They didn't need me to come tell you the gospel. Now, if you ask them about predestination or apologetics, probably I'm going to have to come into that conversation. But if it's just the gospel, how can you be forgiven? How can you go to heaven when you die? That's usually what it, what it pe- appears in their minds. How do I get to go to heaven when I die? They can tell you, well, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? If so, you are going to heaven. That's it. The gospel is so beautifully simple that a child can understand it. And so make sure you understand it. You need to to understand it clearly enough and simply enough that you can share it at a moment's notice with anybody. There's great beauty in simplicity. But you don't really understand something well until you can explain it simply. So I've given you something to memorize here. I would encourage you to make sure that you can share this message. You don't have to use my exact words, but you do have to be able to do this. You need to be able to share the gospel at least as well as my six-year-olds. If somebody comes to you and wants to know, how can they have peace in life? How can they have God's love? How can they know that they're going to heaven when they die? You need to be able to rattle this off. It's really simple. God loves you so much, He sent His Son Jesus to die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift if you simply believe, and that is it. So make sure you can communicate that. That's the simple, beautiful message of the gospel. That's the, the message, the good news that Paul and Barnabas took from city to city throughout this missionary journey. And that's not really a surprise, because if you're going to go on a mission trip, you should probably talk about Jesus. So it's it's not surprising that they shared this message everywhere they went. What's surprising is how they responded when people reacted to that message. The story really gets interesting after Paul shares the gospel. Because that's when it gets surprising. And you get to watch what are people going to do now? And it's interesting, on this first missionary journey, every group of people to whom Paul presents the gospel has a very strong response. Sometimes it's a very positive response. They respond in joy. Other times it's a very negative response. They respond in anger. There was no middle ground on this missionary trip. Everyone either loved them or hated them. That was it. No middle ground. And so it's interesting to see how do Paul and Barnabas respond when the crowds love them or when the crowds hate them. That's where we're going to really learn our our big idea this morning. So let's, let's look first of all at how Paul and Barnabas responded when times were good, when the crowds loved them. What did Paul and Barnabas do? Look with me again at chapter 13. Look at verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things, the gospel, might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. This is a good day. The crowd responds favorably. They want more. They beg them, please come back. And so Paul comes back the next week and nearly the entire city has shown up to hear the word of the Lord. That's a really good week of ministry. That's kind of like the week I dream of having. They're like hundreds of people come to the faith. And then the next Sunday, the entire town of Bryan College Station comes to hear the word of the Lord. That would be crazy exciting. But it would just be honest, it would also be crazy tempting. It would be incredibly tempting tempting to have that kind of moment of success. It would be really tempting to turn my eyes upon myself and look at my abilities, my gifts, my talent, my skill, and to begin to take pride in what I have done. And so many preachers, so many people have gone that way when, when ministry goes great, they end up looking at themselves and taking pride in what they have accomplished. That's what we all tend to do when everything is going great. When everyone loves us, the temptation is to look at yourself and to believe the hype, to believe what people are saying about you, and to, to take pride in all that you have accomplished. But that's not what Paul and Barnabas do. They don't fix their eyes on themselves. What do they do instead? They they fix their eyes on the needs of other people. Did you notice verse 43? Paul, after this incredible moment of ministry, he does not celebrate his victory. Instead, he continues to teach and encourage everyone who believes. That's what Paul and Barnabas do every time. When they have an incredible moment of ministry, they don't take pride. They don't have a parade. They don't, they don't share it on Facebook, how great they are. No, they, they gather everybody together and they teach them. And they encouraged them and they sacrificed their time to help these new believers grow in the faith. And what we're seeing from Paul and Barnabas is that when things were going great, they kept their eyes fixed on the needs of other people. So when it's an incredibly good day, they are still looking at who can I care for? Who can I help in the midst of this really good day? They're going to continue to do that. They're going to have another really good moment in the next chapter. They're going to move on, visit some other cities. They're going to arrive in the city of Lystra eventually in chapter 14. And let's look at the story starting in verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. Lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? Why are also men of the same nature, we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the Crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Now, this is a great day. If chapter 13 was a good day, this is an incredible day. The entire city comes out to worship them as gods. Literally, the city believes in this moment that they are Greek gods and they want to sacrifice to them. And if you read the stories about Greek mythology, what you need to know is that at that moment, Paul and Barnabas could have had anything they wanted these people really believed they were gods so they could have had power money fame pleasure women feasts anything it was theirs for the taking that's what you often see when it comes to celebrity a celebrity enters the room imagine that drake or or taylor swift enters this room all eyes would be on them All eyes are in them. In any room they enter, everyone is looking at them. And in that room, in that moment, they can have anything they want because they're they're celebrity. And most celebrities use that fame to meet their own desires and and build their own fortune. They use fame to, to take care of themselves. Their eyes are on themselves. How can I get what's mine, get what's coming to me out of this moment of celebrity? But that's not what Paul and Barnabas do, is it? Now, in this incredible moment of absolute fame, worshipped literally as gods, when they could have had anything in the world that they wanted, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They focus their attention on Jesus. They point everyone to God. They say, quit looking at us. We're no different than you. They tore their clothes to, to show their humility. We're nothing. We do not want your sacrifices. We do not want anything from you. We want you to look at God. We want you to be grateful for his son, Jesus. They point everyone's attention to Jesus. It's an absolutely miraculous moment. It's incredible. They they fix their eyes on Jesus on the best possible day. They don't use their newfound fame to satisfy their own desires or to build their own fortunes. They point everyone to Jesus. And so when you look at Paul and Barnabas, on their best days, when everything is going well, they fix their eyes not on themselves, but on the needs of others and on the greatness of Jesus. Now let's look at a bad day. Let's look at what they do when life is not coming out roses, when instead they are being persecuted. How do they respond in bad times? We'll look again at chapter 13. Verse 44 we'll start with again. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Things look good so far, but, verse 45... When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, i placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So as they're in Antioch, the crowds love them one week and hate them the next. It's an incredible turn, reversal of fortune. They go from the most popular people in the city to being persecuted and chased out of the city. It reminds me of watching the show Lost. I don't know if any of you were into that we were totally into that. Julie and I used to go to lost watch parties at friends' houses because this was before the days of Netflix. You had to actually watch it the night of. And so we gathered together and like a lot of the other staff here at the church, I won't name, but lots of us gathered together and we would watch this show and then we would stay there for like an extra half hour or hour just just talking about our theories. And it wasn't just like a guy nerd thing to do. Everyone's doing it. The girls too. We're sharing their, is this a dream? Is it a parallel universe? What is going on? We're so into it. Week after week, we were just so excited to watch this show. We loved it until the credits rolled on the last episode. And then we hated it. <laughs> we hated it. It was the most unsatisfying season finale or series finale ever. We were so disappointed they didn't answer any of our questions. We were so mad. Well, that's what's happened to Paul and Barnabas. Everyone loved them. They were on top of the world until Paul opened his mouth that second time. And then everyone hated him. And they were chased out of the city. But what I want you to notice about Paul and Barnabas is what they do when everything goes south. When everyone hates them, what do they do? Well, they, they just find a new group of people to tell about Jesus. I love that. So the Jews hate him? Okay, we'll go to the Gentiles. Gentiles hate him? Okay, we'll go to the next city. They just go from people to people telling them about Jesus because that's where their eyes are fixed. And so, yes, this is going to feel a little repetitive. You're going to see the theme, same themes coming back again. What do they do when life is bad? They fix their eyes on the greatness of Jesus. They just can't stop telling people about how great Jesus is and what great things he's done. And as a result, you have that beautiful verse 52 at the end of the chapter. They're continually filled with joy. Even though they're being persecuted and chased out of town, they feel joy in their hearts. Why? Because their eyes are fixed on how great Jesus is. They're so in love with Jesus, they just can't stop telling people about him. Okay, so things go bad at the end of chapter 13. They keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's look at what happens in chapter 14. Right after the section that we read, look at verse 19. They're back in in Lystra, where, where the crowd just wanted to worship them as gods. They were getting sacrifices ready to worship them as gods. Look at the reversal of fortune, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God let's talk about a roller coaster week. <laughs> Paul was worshipped as a god one moment, the next moment he's stoned. And, and stoning is usually the end of your life. This is the only example I know of where somebody didn't die from it. They obviously expected him to die. This is a miracle. I don't know what God did, whether he supernaturally protected Paul or instantly healed him, whatever it is. God restores Paul. And what does Paul do? He walks right back into the city that had just stoned him. Now, if it's me... I'm going to say to God, God, I'm happy that I was able to help you. Now I'm done with this. (laughs) They tried to kill me. I'm going home now. Or I'm at least going to the beach. Turkey has some really nice beaches. I'd be headed for the sea if I'm Paul. But he's not. He goes right back into the city. And he doesn't go to take vengeance on his enemies or to hide or to drown his sorrows in the pub. He goes right back to share the gospel. He shares the gospel, and he finds people who believed, and he strengthens their faith. He makes disciples, and then the next day, Paul and Barnabas, they go to the next city, plant churches, strengthen the disciples, and then they come back through all of these cities where they were hated, and they strengthen and encourage the disciples. I'm simply amazed at at the example of these men. They face incredible persecution, incredible pain in life, and yet they continually fix their eyes on the needs of other people. I'm just so amazed if there was ever a time when it was okay to focus on your own needs, it was after you just got stoned. Seriously, if I'm in Paul, I would be saying to the Lord, you know, God, what I really need right now is is to not be stoned again. But Paul says, no, I'm going to go care for other people. I'm going to strengthen them, encourage them, teach them, train them. He and Barnabas keep their eyes fixed on the needs of other people. When you look at the example of Paul and Barnabas, it's, it's difficult, it's hard to do what they've done, but that is the key to experiencing verse 52. If you want life to be full of joy, if that's the life you want to have, whether you're taking care of your kids, going to the same job day after day, trying to pass your finals, whatever you're facing in life, if you want a life filled with joy, you must take your eyes off yourself. It's as simple as that. Got to get your eyes off of yourself and you got to focus your eyes on the needs of other people. You need to dedicate your time, your energy, your money, your resources to taking care of the physical and spiritual needs of of other people. Here's how Paul puts it in the book of Romans chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification for even Christ did not please himself. If you want a life of joy, you have to follow the example of Jesus and spend your time and your treasure caring for other people. That means that throughout your day, throughout your life, your common habit is to take your time and your money and dedicate it to meeting the spiritual and physical needs of other people. So spiritual needs. The best way you can do that is to be praying for and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with people you don't know, or people you know who don't yet know Jesus. And so I'll remind you, what is our long-term application this fall? What are we doing together this fall? We're praying for three people. Three people by name in your life who don't yet know Jesus. So I gave you those cards a few weeks ago so you could fill them out with the names of three people you know who don't yet know Jesus. We need to be praying for those people every week. We need to be praying that God would give us opportunities to share the gospel with them. And we need to be ready and expectant for those opportunities. Is it going to cost you time? Yes. You could be watching a show. You could be enjoying other friends. You could be doing whatever you want during that time. Are you willing to sacrifice that time, that energy, to care for that person by sharing the gospel with them? So keep your eyes fixed on the needs of other people. Think more about those three people than about yourself on a day-to-day basis and and you'll begin to experience real joy. But it's not just spiritual needs, it's also physical needs. Who, Who can you take care of who has financial need or a health need or some kind of physical need in their lives? If it's somebody in your life, start with them. God put them near you, so they're your responsibility. A family member or a neighbor who is in desperate need, you care for them first. But if you're like me, for a lot of us, we don't have people in desperate physical needs near us, like in our circle of influence. And so we have to look outside our circle. Who are some people we don't know? who have desperate physical needs that we can care for, I'm going to give you one opportunity this morning, one that Julie and I care deeply for. We have been involved sponsoring um, Children's Relief International for years. It's a ministry that our church partners with. We know a lot of the people on their board and and on their staff. They are, are dedicated to taking Christ both in word and in deed to the most desperately needy people on the planet, who are, of course, usually children. And so I'm going to share with you the story of of one particular missionary couple we support who take care of uh, orphans who are HIV positive. And so in the country that they are in, and I'm not going to say that just for security reasons, the the orphans with HIV are the most desperately vulnerable and needy people on the planet you've ever met. No one will care for them. No one will even touch them. And yet are spending their lives caring for these children's physical needs so that they can share the gospel with them. So here's their story, one particular child. So in their city, there's one orphanage. It's run by Buddhists. And and the Buddhist monk who runs it has told them, well, lots of other people will drop off clothes or food, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists. they'll, They'll all give stuff, but no one will walk into the orphanage and be with the children, except them. It's only Christians who will walk in and and actually touch the children. And so my encouragement for you is if you don't have somebody near you in your life with dire physical needs that you can meet, I'm going to encourage you, let's help out. Let's help them. They want to build a new home because there's great need in that city. There's no Christian orphanages. They want to build one for HIV orphans to take care of their physical needs but then also to introduce them to Jesus. And so if you'd like to be part of that project, my good friend Ricky is in the foyer. You can talk to him. He's with CRI. Or you can go to their website, childrensrelief.org, and sponsor there. And you can give directly to that like Julie and I do. So if you want to live a life full of joy... The first thing you need to do is you need to fix your eyes on the needs of others. But second, you need to fix your eyes on the greatness of Jesus. Let me walk you through this point as the men go back to prepare communion. We get to celebrate communion this morning, which is going to fit really well with this message. We need to fix our eyes on the greatness of Jesus of Jesus. If we want to experience joy in our lives, we have to fill our minds with Jesus. It's it's what is talked about Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sure you've heard these verses. One of the most famous passages you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfector of our faith. If you want to live a life of joy, you must fix your eyes on Jesus. And this passage is interesting because it tells you that, that life is going to be hard. Life is a marathon race. And I assume you know no one runs a marathon because it's comfortable, no one runs a marathon because it feels good. It doesn't. Life is hard, life is painful. And yet we can endure that pain with joy if we will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, if we will let Jesus be the center of our attention throughout the day. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that you're thinking about Jesus every moment of every day. Some of you have to think about calculus. Others of you have to think about feeding your kids. And all of us have to think about taxes. So we have things to think about. The the point of this passage, what it's saying, let me break it down as simply as I can. It's saying that in those in-between moments, when you are walking on campus between classes or when your kids are for a brief, beautiful second playing in their own rooms or when one meeting has ended at work and another has not yet begun. In those in-between moments, you need to recenter your mind on Jesus. That's what Hebrews is talking about. All those little in between moments during the day, you are refilling your mind, recentering your mind on Jesus. Now, here is the problem. We live in a world where all of those in between moments are now filled with this. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the major change that's happened to human society in the last decade that was never true for thousands of years of human society. You no longer have quiet minutes, ever. Because you get out of a class and you pick this up. Put the earbud in your ear. You're listening to music or you're checking Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. It's not just students. We adults, we do that. We get out of one meeting. We got time for the next. Let's check my email. Let's, let's check statuses. Let's, let's check the news. Parents, you do the same thing. You finally get the kids down for bed and the TV's on instantly. We have left ourselves no in-between minutes to refocus our mind on Christ. And that has got to change. There is no possible way to experience joy in your life if you have filled every spare moment with this. This will never give you joy. It will distract you. It will not make you joyful. And so what I'm going to challenge you to do, this is going to be hard, but I'm going to challenge you to build a habit of putting this down. When a meeting ends and another one hasn't yet begun, or when one class ends and you're walking to the next class, or when you get in your car to drive, don't turn on the radio, don't look at your phone, don't put in the earphones, just take those three minutes of silence. Just three minutes. You can turn it on after three minutes, but take three minutes. And during those three minutes, I want you to think about Jesus. And, and I want you to to remember who he is and what he's done. And I want you to give thanks that he loves you and that he died for you and he rose from the dead for you. And I want you to pray. That's three minutes. You're just praying. Prayer doesn't have to be like an hour long part of the day. It's just one minute here, one minute there, one minute there. I want you to think about scripture that you've read. Meditate on it, memorize it, read it. I want you to take those moments in between and reclaim them and dedicate them to the Lord. If you'll begin to do that, if that will become the habit, if you're the guy, if you're the girl that when you're walking from class to class isn't looking at your phone but is thinking about Jesus and giving him thanks for this day he's made, then you will find joy growing in your life. That is the secret to joy. You take your eyes off yourself and you fix them on the needs of other people and on the greatness of Jesus Christ. If that becomes your habit, you're doing that in these in-between moments throughout your day, you will find joy growing on both your good days and your bad days. So we're going to do that right now together by taking communion. We're going to celebrate Jesus Christ. We're going to give thanks to God for his son. So as the men come forward, you guys can come on forward and pass the communion elements. I'm going to ask you to take the next couple minutes and give thanks for Jesus, So, I just want you to think about who Jesus is, what he's done for you. I want you to think about how much worse your life would be if Jesus had not come to die for you and rise from the dead. So, take a few minutes to give thanks to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Lord Jesus we do remember you this morning We remember how great you are. We remember that you are the Son of God. You created the universe. You created life. We remember that you, who are creator, chose to become one of us. You took on our flesh. You came and and walked among us. And you took all of our sin upon yourself and you died In our place and we remember that you rose from the dead so that we could have freedom so that we could be free of death and fear and Satan and sin and we give thanks for you Jesus we want to fix our eyes on you we want to celebrate how great you are. We pray that you would help us to reclaim those in-between moments throughout each day of the week, Lord, that we would take those moments and that we would fill our minds with you, Jesus, that we would remember how good you are, that we would think and meditate upon the greatness of your sacrifice, that we would give thanks to you. Oh, Lord, please help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. If you'll stand, let's respond to Jesus in worship.